You're listening to the Fanfic Maverick Podcast, the show where I talk to fanfiction writers about their work and the marvelous world of fanfiction. This show may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. The following few paragraphs are from the prologue chapter of The Dragon's Roar, a fanfiction story written by today's guest fanfiction author, Priestess of Groove. There was a stunned moment of silence before the remaining humans shouted to the heavens, raising their weapons to the sky. Even now the Night King was dead. John's sword burned merrily where it lay in the snow, but he paid it little mind. He glanced down at his side to see the blood still leaking away. The war had finally been won, but he knew there wasn't a man alive left in the vicinity who could treat this wound. He simply nodded to himself and then glanced up. Already the snow was hurrying to bury Jamie Lannister's body, and so he crawled over to him with agonizing slowness. It was no more than a few feet away, but even that small action left John breathless. He peered into the Lannister's face. Already the skin was going blue underneath his scraggly beard, and even with his eyes closed at peace, deep worry lines cut into the crevices of his face. John peeled back a lid and was pleased to see that it was the natural emerald green that stared back at him, instead of the lightning blue. He closed his eyes again. Thank you, Jamie. It was because of your actions that we were able to end this war. It could not have been done without you, John whispered. No one will know of your sacrifice, but you were a truly honorable man in the end. You deserve to be remembered throughout the ages. I hope you finally reunited with Brienne. A sudden light and warmth hit his face, and he flinched away for a moment before turning to stare incredulously. The sun was rising. It cut through the night sky with such stark contrast. The sight seemed illusory. The cheers from around him rose to an even greater pitch as they all were once more bathed in the warm light that none of them had ever thought they would feel on their skin again. John smiled and felt tears cut across his face. If only everyone had lived to see this sight. He didn't think he had ever seen anything more beautiful in his life. And only the sight of Daenerys smiling at him could make it more beautiful. His strength finally gave out and he slumped over in the snow, but he continued to stare at the sun with a small smile on his face until the light faded from his eyes. As soon as Jon Snow's soul departed, the flame-engulfing Longclaw sputtered and died. To the north, south, east, and west, four corners of the world, greetings from the wild era desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Today's guest fanfiction writer is the notorious P.O.G. Priestess of Groove. She has been a member of AO3 since 2018, and she has eight Game of Thrones-related fanfiction works posted, including her infamous The Dragon's Roar, and she's aspiring to be a published author. Priestess of Groove, Valar Magalas, my friend. Thank you so much for being here today. Welcome to the show. How's it going? Thank you for having me. Oh, it's going very well. Awesome. Well, we're so excited that you're here. I've been wanting to talk to you for quite some time because I've been following the Dragon's Roar for a while. 
And so it's super cool that you're here today. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Now, when we get into the interview questions here, I know that we usually start talking about the time that you first discovered fan fiction. But in this case, we're not going to go there. And the reason for that is because you told me that you think you got into fan fiction around 12 or 13, but you don't actually remember how that happened. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah, which I think is actually really cool because it just means that it's been a part of your life for so long that it feels like it's always been there. And there's just something very beautiful about that. So I just wanted to mention that really quick, that I think that's so beautiful. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. Yeah, it's been a huge part of my life. Yes, yeah. Well, and, and a huge part of so many of our lives as well. Now, I understand that you did start off on fanfiction.net. Is that correct? That is correct. Ah, okay. Because I know that you started posting the Dragon's Roar to fanfiction.net first, and then you did kind of hop over to AO3 and started cross-posting it there too. I know this is probably a controversial question, but do you have a preference? I prefer AO3. Ah, <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. Not that I'm knocking fanfiction.net because God knows I started there myself too. You know? Oh, yeah. In the early 2000s, late 90s, I was totally there. But I just, I don't go there anymore because my eyes can't handle the formatting of the platform anymore. Oh, yeah. The the user interface. Yeah, the user interface is bad. And then when you actually pull up a fan fiction, the text is so small and it's squished on the page in such a way that I just cannot make heads or tails of it. And my brain refuses to actually focus on the actual story. <laughs> so I just can't do it anymore. Uh, it's just me getting old, though, though. So, you know... <laughs> Now, I did want to ask, do you remember what your first fandom experiences were like? Yeah, I do a little bit. So the way I work is that I tend to go all aboard on one fandom, and then I stick with that fandom for ages. Absolute ages. When you say ages, are we talking about like five years, ten years, like... Five to eight years, depending. Holy cow. Do you remember what your first fandom was? Red Wall. Red Wall. So you were probably part of that fandom for a really long time then, if that's kind of oh, how yeah. you operate, right? Yes. And the fandom actually, considering that Red Wall is, it's known, but it's not Harry Potter levels of known, but it still had a pretty healthy fandom. The people were very passionate about the series for a very long time. So the fandom didn't even really start diminishing until about uh, 2008, 2009. Oh, really? And I joined at around 2002, 2003. Oh, so you had quite some time in that fandom in its heyday then. Yes. And I mean, it was going pretty strong even before I joined. Oh, okay. Now, were people writing fan fiction about Redwall? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Redwall has a decent fan fiction collection. I don't think... It has one on AO3. It's mostly confined to fanfiction.net since AO3 wasn't around back then. Right, right. No, that makes sense. That's so cool. You're actually the first person I've talked to who even knows what the Redwall series is. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. You know, my favorite of all of the series books was Marcus the Warrior. That was my favorite. You mean Martin the Warrior? Yes, that's what I mean. Martin the Warrior. It was such a long time ago. But I remember reading Martin the Warrior and being like, oh my god, this is the best. And it never occurred to me that people could be writing fan fiction about Redwall. So I love that. 
Martin the Warrior, I think, was my very first Redwall book. Oh, that's cool. Well, you know, then it makes sense why it kind of sucked you in. Because I feel like that was one of the best ones of the series. But maybe that's just me being biased. Did you have a favorite? Yes. The Legend of Luke. Oh, not that one I liked as well. I thought that was very well done. So Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed The Legend of Luke. I kind of liked the split between Martin and his friends on their journey and then hearing about Martin's father and his journey. Yeah, it was really fascinating to be able to hear about Martin's father. And uh, I just love the way that that author makes all of these really interesting characters. They're all so different from one another, and they all have interesting backstories. So definitely very cool. I love that, that you were a part of that fandom. Did you make a lot of friends there? Yeah, a decent amount of friends, and I'm still even in touch with some of the people there. Oh, that's so cool. I love that. With Game of Thrones, because obviously, like, you're kind of in the Game of Thrones fandom, writing your current project for that and everything. How long have you been part of that scene? Since about, I would say maybe about 2016, maybe 2015. I binged the show in 2017 before season seven aired. But before I binged the show, I started reading the books. Right, right. I remember you mentioning that you read the books, which I think is super interesting. And I want to ask you about that later. That's really cool. So that kind of means that you still have a little bit of time left in this fandom then, if you usually stick around between eight and 10 years <laughs> for fandom. Well, I mean, it, it really does depend. I think TDR is likely to be my very last fanfiction for Game of Thrones. I don't know if I'll write any more before TDR finishes up, but yeah. I guess we'll see. Yeah, you know, it's wide open, whatever you feel like doing. Although, honestly, this is such a huge project that I really wouldn't blame you if this was the last one that you write for Game of Thrones, because it's just yeah. so huge. I can't wait to talk about it a little bit more with you, but um, I did want to ask you something else. I've never asked this question on the show before, but I've kind of been thinking about the concept of fandom lately. Because I'm just fascinated by the fact that there are fandom people in the world and then there are non-fandom people. I probably actually know more non-fandom people in my real life. And I'm just fascinated by how they can consume some of the same media that I consume and not get into the fandom aspect. Whereas I fall head over heels with certain TV shows or movies or books. And I'm just like all in, you know, and I've always wondered, what is that thing in us nerds that makes us like fandom people? Is it because we get so invested in the story that we just can't leave it alone? Is it a personality thing? Like, do you have any thoughts on that? I do. I did give this quite a lot of thought. And of course, I think only really a sociologist might be able to actually determine the answer with you know, research and everything. What my thoughts are based on is purely anecdotal. So to start off with me, I was a pretty lonely kid when I was first stumbled upon fanfiction. I didn't have many friends and not very close ones. Writers themselves tend to be fairly private and rather introverted group, and I'm no exception. I made for a rather boring teen in that I was more interested in sitting at the computer working on my stories than going out and partying. I think to a larger extent, fandom has a tendency to draw together individuals who don't have many close friends in their lives outside of the internet. And 
I forged friendships with uh, a lot of the same people at the time, and there's also more to fandom than just fan fiction. For instance, you know, female and LGBTQ plus creators tend toward the fan fiction side either because we're interested in writing our own stories for representation or we want to see other characters shack up. Yeah. But male fans tend towards the theory side. This is pretty evident in Game of Thrones specifically. (laughs) Yes, I've noticed that. I've noticed that. I have had some male partners over the course of my life, and they've all been like that, you know? They don't understand the fanfiction side because the fanfiction side has no rules. So when I would explain a fanfiction story that I was reading, they just couldn't understand it because it didn't jive with canon. And if it wasn't canon, they literally couldn't understand it. All they were interested in was gathering facts about the fandom and memorizing them. Yep. You know? Um, (laughs) I mean, GOT has a larger amount of male writers than I think your average fanfic fandom does. But there's a whole lot of theorycraft for that series. It seems to draw a lot of male fans in particular. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, this split is a bit more evident given GRM's rather frosty attitude towards fanfiction. It used to be that he despised fanfiction outright, and so many of his most ardent fans swear off any and all fanfiction of GRM's works. However, his opinion has defrosted just a little bit. Has it really? I think so. And he... He's just like, look, I don't like fan fiction. I think people who write fan fiction are uncreative and unimaginative, but I'm not going to make you stop doing it. Just don't bring it to my attention. Oh, so kind of like a capitulation. Like, I'm not going to sue you, but I still don't like you. (laughs) Oh, He's letting up a little on those attitudes since the man himself is taking so damn long with the last books. Oh, right. Right. People have been waiting over 10 years. Yes. And they want something. Oh, yeah. So how else are they going to get that but through fan fiction? Yeah. And then after the disappointment of the TV show. Oh, good God. Good God. Yes. we. I plan on bringing that up here in a few minutes as well because I'm still so salty about that. But before we get into that... I also love bringing up at the beginning of the show just general thoughts and feelings about fan fiction as a concept. I want to know what are the things that you love the most about fan fiction? What makes it special? Why is it worth writing and reading for you? Just all of your thoughts on that. Well, I mean, generally my favorite fan fictions have a tendency to be alternate universe or canon divergence, I guess is the better term for it and the possibilities of world expansion that are available. Because the thing with fan fiction is that it gives you, like, you don't have to follow the rules if you don't want to, but the rules are still there for you to be able to take them and craft your own story and own direction for where you think the story could go or where you would prefer it to go. And I think that's what makes fan fiction special is that It's just such a free expression of creativity and imagination. I love that because, yeah, you're right. You're right. Like, canon is there if you want it. But as a fan fiction writer, you can absolutely disregard canon if you want to. And there's nobody there to stop you, right? Yeah, exactly. You can literally take your story any direction you want. Sky's the limit, honestly. And furthermore, it's worth reading 
because uh, I mean, reading itself is a good hobby to have. Like, sure, it's not published, so the editing might be a little suspect, but you know, you can learn just as much from unedited works as edited works. You can learn what would constitute as bad writing versus good writing and so on and so forth. But also for just people in general, writing is such a fundamental aspect of our society. It's so important. You do it every single day. So being able to write and being able to communicate your ideas is just an absolutely fundamental skill. And it's it gladdens me so much that no matter what age you are, you can engage with fan fiction and post it. Yes. Oh, and I love that you brought up the fact that fan fiction and the writing of fan fiction can translate into real life skills. Because I was just thinking about that the other day, that fan fiction writing really does teach you writing skills, which you can apply to every other aspect of your life, especially professionally. And I also think that writing fan fiction helps people learn how to do project management, right? Oh, yeah. I feel like that also becomes a skill that translates into people's real-life careers. So there are definitely real-life skills that one can learn and practice by writing fan fiction. So that's really cool. Now, for you, I know that you told me before the show that you went to school for digital art. Mm-hmm. Now, what are some of the things that inspired you to want to become a writer? I've wanted to become a published writer ever since I was in middle school, a teenager at least. But the thing is, is that, like many people who write fan fiction, I was convinced that I would not be able to make a job of creative writing. I mean, it's already really difficult to begin with. But also just, I used to be a person who would write a chapter and then immediately post it. And I also operated on that whole, like, I can't put a schedule to inspiration. That's not how it works. And so, yeah, I just, I wanted to be a published writer, but I didn't want that to be my whole career. I just wanted it to be a hobby. And fan fiction is great for that, right? Because in that sense, it can be. And nobody's looking over your shoulder telling you when you have to post something. Oh, yeah. And it's helped me hone my skills quite a lot. I definitely wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't spent the last 20 years or so writing fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. And that's such a long time to be writing. So, I mean, I think that that's so cool when people can focus for that long of a time on a certain craft, because you can absolutely see in their work that they've put so much dedication into it, into learning the craft. And that's definitely, I think, something that I've been enjoying about your work, especially. Oh, thank you. Now, okay, so <laughs> since we are doing a Game of Thrones episode today, <laughs> we do have to just talk a little bit about <laughs> Game of Thrones and kind of have some things to say about that. I did want to start by asking, what are the things that you love the most about Game of Thrones? And then after you tell us things that you love the most, let's go ahead and cover the things, especially about the TV show that just made us salty, because I have some things to say. <laughs> Oh, I can imagine. Yes, yes. But first, if you could just tell us, what are the things that you love the most about GOT? So it's funny because Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire, 
is not a story I ever expected to really grab me or inspire me. I mean, I was in the Red Wall series, so you'd think with the whole medievalness that I would be attracted to both, but Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire is just so grim and dark and gritty. I had a lot of trouble getting through it because it's just not what I like to see in a story. I mean, I do like conflict, and certainly Game of Thrones has tons of that. Right. But it always felt like nothing could ever go right in the series. That always bothered me. However, I will not deny that George R. R. Martin has an uncanny knack for creating characters, individuals. I am very much an author who enjoys character-driven narratives, and characters, as far as I'm concerned, are the most important part of any kind of story, and without a doubt, George R. R. Martin's characters are some of the best that have ever been written. That's why I ended up writing for Game of Thrones at all, is just because I love the characters so much, and... <laughs> It's funny because I swore to myself that I would never write a Game of Thrones fan fiction. Did you really? Yes. The, <laughs> the world is just so big. There's so many characters and there's so many houses and names and logistics. And I'm just like, oh, there's too much. That's so true. It's so there's so much minutiae yes. that goes along with the GOT universe. That I can absolutely see how, for a writer, that would just seem so overwhelming and daunting. Oh, yeah. And I had never written for such a large cast before. And writing for a lot of these characters is just so challenging. And I was just like, I'll just enjoy the fan fiction. I'll never write a Game of Thrones fanfic. But of course, if you read the fan fiction, that has a tendency to get the gears going. <laughs> Oh, and it gets you thinking, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Now, I put your story in a fix-it category, yes. right? Would you say that the fix-it part of your story is one of the reasons why you started writing it in the first place? Yes, because I started writing it after season seven aired. And I distinctly remember I watched Viserion destroy the wall. And I was just like, no, there's no way, or at least I can't think of a way, where the, the heroes can beat a damn undead dragon <laughs> without some kind of, like, deus ex machina. Right! And I was just like, this is, yeah, I just don't see how it would happen. And so I want to fix it. I want to time travel fix it. And those were my favorite to read. Now, you said that you read the books, right? I've read up to book four. Oh, okay. Because I was just going to ask, like, you know, I have not read the books at all, so I have nothing really to compare the show with. I do remember watching that undead dragon rise out of the sea and thinking to myself, like, does this happen in the books or are they just making this shit up? Like, what? They're making that shit up. Daenerys hasn't even left Essos in the books yet. I suspected that at that point they were just making shit up. And you know, here's the part, okay, where I get a little bit salty about GOT. Okay, I have several things that I'm salty about, Go okay? Fire away. Okay, so my first issue is Oberyn Martell, okay? <laughs> he was so interesting to me. 
I absolutely loved his character. I loved learning about Dornish culture. He's bisexual. I'm bisexual. Like it just, I loved that character so much, and I felt like he got written out of the story way too soon. Does that make sense? Yeah, I did not like that at all. And I, I've heard that that same thing happened in the books, right? Where? Oh yeah, yeah. That was a major plot point of the books. Yeah. And wasn't it that he just got tired of like writing for that character, so he just killed him off or something like that? Yeah, that's what the other podcaster I spoke with said, the Black's Resurgence. Yeah, yeah. R. R. Martin just said, no, oh, I got tired of writing him. Oh, and that just made me so sad. I really loved that character, and he was so interesting to me. He was. And I felt like he died way too soon, okay? And then the other thing that I am so super salty about is obviously the Daenerys storyline, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Because, like, I was rooting for her so hard. You know, coming from a woman's perspective, there are not a whole lot of shows out there with a strong female character to that degree, yeah. right? And finally, finally, there's fucking one on TV. I believe in her message. I believe in her mission. I'm rooting for her. And all of a sudden, she goes crazy mm-hmm. at the end of the show and just forgets everything she ever stood for. And it was like, I was so angry. I was so fucking angry at that last season eight. I could not fucking believe it because it made no sense nah. whatsoever. No, it didn't. And I've seen a lot of debate going around in the Game of Thrones fandom. It's just like, well, you could see they were building up to it. And it's just like, no, not really and then there's some (laughs) yeah there's some suggestions of double standards because they're just like oh she crucified all of the masters in marine and it's just like tywin lannister completely destroyed every single member of the reigns and the tarbex including all of the children and yet no one thinks that he's fucking insane right so why is it that this is a sign of insanity for Daenerys, but not for Tywin? Is it just because she's a Targaryen? I think that's really the only real reason, and also pro- probably because she's a woman, and women are emotional. Yes, I was going to say that, that, you know, when women exhibit those same behaviors, the narrative around those behaviors is, she's hysterical, and oh, yeah. she's not making any sense, and blah, blah, blah. But when a man does the same thing, yeah, you know, uh, people praise him for having such a strong iron fist. Exactly. Exactly. The language that is used to talk about those same exact behaviors is completely different. And it's so disgusting. I hate it. But anyway, I was so mad about that. And, you know, you know, people named their children after Daenerys Stormborn. They named their children after her. And to have that happen at the very end, like, I feel so bad. For all of those people, I just feel bad for everybody. Like, it was awful. And then my third salty thing, and then I'll shut up and let you (laughs) talk about what you're salty about, but my third salty thing was Jamie Lannister. Mm, I mean, that's my number one salty thing. (laughs) Yes! uh, Yes! Like, okay, I'll admit, like, when when I first started watching the show, I did not like Jamie Lannister. He was an asshole. Of course. And, you know, yeah, I didn't like him either. What right. A I don't person. think anyone's supposed to like him, right? He just yeah. <laughs> But, like, as the show progresses, you see him 
I feel like he really did go through more character development than most yeah, of the characters on the show. And I am a sucker for character development. Like, I love that shit. And I was really excited to see that character development in him, especially in his interactions with Brienne. And then, you know, he leaves his sister, which was just so monumental for me because I almost never saw that happening. And then when it did, I was like, oh, my God, so cool. And then he gets to the north, hangs out for a little bit, and then is like, well, I guess I should go back to my sister. And it made no fucking sense to me. No. No fucking sense. I was so angry at that. So incredibly, incredibly angry. So I'll shut up now and let you talk about the things that you're salty about, because I suspect that some of our salty things might overlap here just a bit. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, as I said, Jamie is my number one salty thing that I hated about season eight. And I think what makes it even more frustrating is just his contrast from the books. Like, yeah, the books aren't finished. We don't exactly know where Jamie is going in the books. However, the TV show really started diverging around season five. Like the whole Dorn plot in the show is way different from the Dorn plot in the books. What what was her name? Uh, Oberyn's paramour. She does not kill Doran in the books. That doesn't happen. <laughs> oh God. Yeah, and Doran is uh, he's like some kind of trap waiting to spring. He's still alive in the books, as far as oh I really. Know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because she just went right up there and she killed him. Yeah. In the series. Alaria. That's her name. Alaria. Yeah, so from what I understood in the books is that she wasn't even all that gung-ho about getting revenge for Oberyn. She's just like, oh, it was terrible, but like that's what happens in a trial by combat sometimes. I am just going off speculation from what I've heard since I haven't actually read that part. But anyway... The Daenerys stuff that happens in season five is, I think, mostly lifted from the books. Ser Barristan is not yet dead in the books. Ah, okay. Yeah. So you have that that's a little bit different. Yes. And uh, it's kind of a shame, too, because it would have been nice to see, like, Ser Barristan coming back and maybe seeing Jon and actually learning about his heritage. I think that would have been a really cool moment. Hell, Jamie was even there, and he was all about, like, oh, I didn't protect Rhaegar's children, and that's always been the largest regret I have, and yet he didn't even know about Jon's heritage, and they didn't even have a scene together, and it was just so poorly done. So poorly done. Wouldn't that have been such a powerful scene? Yes. Yes, it would have. Yeah, to finally, like, redeem himself, because the whole, the whole story, he's so regretful. Well, I say regretful, and maybe that's probably not the word, but that whole Kingslayer thing really does weigh on him in some degree or another. So to have that powerful scene with John and be able to, I don't know. Come to amends? Yeah, yeah. That would have been so powerful. Yeah, so anyway, in book five, after Tywin is killed, Jamie and Cersei are actually quite at odds with each other. They're not on good terms at all, especially since it was Jaime that freed Tyrion, and Cersei kind of suspects that was the case. I don't know if she ever actually learns that he did free Tyrion, but she always knew that he loved Tyrion, and for him to just suddenly disappear... Well, she had to have suspected. I think, yeah, I think, I think she, she did. Yeah, I think she suspected. Anyway, yeah. so Jaime goes to take over River Run, 
Like, that is true to the books as well. However, their split between Cersei and Jaime is quite fixed at this point. I don't think Jaime is even around when she decides to bring the militant faith into play. And anyway, when Cersei gets captured by the militant faith, if I remember correctly, she was supposed to get like a letter to Jaime asking him to be her champion. This is the books, and he tosses the letter into the fire. <gasps> no! Yeah, he's just like, oh, fuck this. I'm not doing this. Oh my god! So yeah, the split between Jeremy and Cersei are way more evident in the books than in, than in the so show. So by then, their relationship really deteriorated. Oh, it, it's in poor shape. But of course, we only have book five. We don't have book six. We don't know how that ended up. But essentially, Brienne shows up and Jamie's like, Oh, hey, how's it going? Oh, you need help? Let me ride off with you. <laughs> oh, my God. It just, I, it got me that he makes the decision to leave and to go to the north and then could so easily change his mind afterwards and be like, oh. I mean, I, I do have a theory about what was supposed to happen. Yeah. But for one... D&D did not execute it very well, and I don't want to give them any credit for it. But I think, I think the reason why Jamie just could so easily change his mind is because Bran made him. That was Bran's revenge for throwing him off the tower. Oh, does he have that ability? I mean, he affected Hodor. Oh, well, yeah, he did, but for like, um... I think he could manipulate. Really? Like, <gasps> I think he could manipulate his thoughts. Oh, uh, now you're blowing my mind because I never, like, I considered think, that that was a possibility. I mean, the oh books my books go into a lot more detail about, well, in the books, it's the three-eyed crow, not the three-eyed raven. So the books spend a lot of time on the three-eyed crow, whereas Bran didn't even get a scene in season five. So we missed all that. So they probably go more into the actual abilities of a warg in the books then. Yes. Because if he does have the ability to affect another person's behavior long term, that certainly isn't really suggested in the tv show because you do see him take over hodor's actions very short term and then he lets him go you know <laughs> so it never occurred to me that he could manipulate somebody's thoughts or feelings in a long-term way i mean he did with hodor he made him into a simpleton remember <gasps> hold the door oh yes okay this is how like simple i am i was just like oh um, some sort of magical brain damage. That's too bad, you know? <laughs> For some reason, I didn't see that as a continuous uh, string of, like, magical manipulation. But I can absolutely see how it could be. That's very true. Yeah, and then Blood Raven is formally Brandon... Oh, shit. Some kind of Targaryen bastard. Brandon Snow? I can't remember what his name was, it slips me right now, but Blood Raven was a really strong ally with a Targaryen king of some sort. And this was during a, around the Blackfire Rebellion. He did some pretty terrible things to keep the Targaryens in power. But then, because the things he did were so terrible, 
They had to do something about it, so they banished him to the wall. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, so he's kind of got this built-up resentment and revenge against the Targaryens for what they did to him after what he did to secure their power for them. And so there is some, I've heard theories that Bran, you know, he became so weird and monotonous after uh, he left the tree. There's some suggestion that Bloodraven, even though his body died, his mind went into Bran's and he took over Bran. And maybe oh. he affected Daenerys' thinking and that's why she went mad. Oh, well, see, that would be an interesting explanation that I would be willing to explore and give some thought and credence to. Sure. You know, because at least that would be an explanation, right? Yeah, <laughs> it is an explanation. There's just no, they built up zero evidence for it in the show. Correct. Zero evidence. So right now it's just a bunch of GOT conspiracy theories that yeah. could have some credence, but as of right now have no hard evidence to back it up. There is I think a single piece of evidence in the show, and that's the very last episode where Bran's like, why do you think I came all this way? It suggests he deliberately manufactured and manipulated this whole scenario so that oh, he God. could be king. Oh, shit. <laughs> like He said, I can't be Lord of Winterfell, but he can be king of the six kingdoms? Bullshit. Bullshit. I couldn't decide how I felt about him being the king after all of that. It was really dumb. Well, and then John going back to the wall, like, really? Really? Yeah, I love that. It's just like, oh, well, you, you killed the queen of the six kingdoms, but the north is independent, but we're not going to save you from going beyond the wall either. Right? Right? And then what the fuck was that all about with him, like, coming back from the dead? I was expecting him to have some sort of like grand destiny or something. Yeah. And then at the end of everything, he goes back to the wall and I'm like, all right, well, fuck me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah the story was setting up for him to kill the Night King and then it just yes. pulls the rug out from under everybody. It's just like, nah, come on. <laughs> I know. This is not a story about mythology and dreams coming true. This is Game of Thrones, so nobody ever gets what they actually like in terms of good things what they actually deserve i guess i guess i don't know it just it was very questionable choices for a lot of different character storylines i'm still salty about it but um <laughs> anyway <laughs> now i did want to start talking about your work here a little bit i understand that you started writing the dragon's roar as a NaNoWriMo challenge in November. Is that correct? That's correct. Awesome. Had you ever participated in that before? Yes, I have. Oh, that's cool. So this started off as that, and then it just kind of grew legs and went from there. Uh, Yeah. It's it's kind of funny because the very first time I did NaNoWriMo, I was 15 or so. And even though I had written several long fics, even before I was 15... I still, for some reason, didn't have a very good grasp of how much 50,000 words actually was. And while I did complete that NaNoWriMo, my story was complete and utter trash. It was god-awful. It was terrible. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I deleted it and didn't look back. But then, after I completed that NaNoWriMo, I ended up not being able to write a damn thing for three months. It burned me out. Oh, yeah, because you are really pushing yourself in that month to just churn out. Yeah, 
I got school and everything. And yeah, I distinctly remember we went to my grandparents for Thanksgiving and I was just like, I need to be able to write in the car. Oh my God. Please. <laughs> so are you like sitting in the back seat, yeah, like writing, much. writing, writing? <laughs> oh my God. That's so cool, though. But you did it. Yeah, I did it. And then I didn't do NaNoWriMo for quite a long time after that. Yeah. And then I took a couple of years hiatus from writing because I ended up being in between fandoms. There was just nothing in particular that grabbed my interest and inspired me to actually write for it. So I was just kind of like, mm, mm. But then I decided to pick up writing again because, I mean, I love writing. It's a great hobby to have and also a cheap hobby to have and I was like all right I need to get back into writing so I decided to do a NaNoWriMo and this was for a different project this is for a Harry Potter project that has long since been abandoned so uh, sorry people but I just decided I didn't want to continue it anymore and it wasn't even that popular anyway so I I wrote a Harry Potter piece to kind of get me back into the swing of things and it worked for what I needed it for and around about that time, I started reading the books for A Song of Ice and Fire. And then I binged the show. And then I started, you know, the, the gears started creaking for fan fiction works. And about a week or two before NaNoWriMo began again, uh, I got the idea for The Dragon's Roar. And, oh yeah, I was raring to go. And then I did jump in with both feet. And... 16 chapters in one month. Definitely the highest amount of writing I've done in a single month. Oh, that is amazing. Now, when you did that for TDR, was that the same feeling of exhaustion when NaNoWriMo was over? Or were you just like so energized by the end of it? No, I still had so much more left to write. And I was still so excited about the story. I just kept going. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah, that is so cool. Well, and understandable, too, because the scope of this project is just so huge. It, it really is. I can absolutely understand that after completing the NaNoWriMo part, you would just be like, well, there's so much more left to say, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. Now, we said before that The Dragon's Roar is an epic Game of Thrones fix-it fic. Me and the rest of your readers are familiar with The Dragon's Roar, but for the listeners to this show who maybe have never heard of it and never read it, could you just tell us really quick what this fan fiction is about? What inspired you to write it? Are there any themes and messages that you're trying to explore here with this work? Yeah, so in the prologue of The Dragon's Roar, Jon Snow, Jamie Lannister, and a few other known characters lead the last remaining survivors in Westeros against the Army of the Dead for one final battle. In a great effort, John kills the Night King, but both he and Jaime Lannister die in the fight. And with only a couple thousand survivors, humanity is basically doomed. And the gods don't like this, so they decide to turn back the clock and take Jon Snow and Jaime Lannister back to before the world fall apart, with their memories intact. And when they wake up in their respective places, neither is aware that the other has been brought back. It's kind of up to them to find each other and suss it out. And when they do, they start making plans for John to take the throne and unite the Seven Kingdoms. And they're brought back to the very beginning of where the books originally started, just a little bit before Robert Baratheon shows up in Winterfell. 
So we're talking all the way back to the beginning. Yeah, I really liked that part that they was kind of brought all the way back to the beginning. Although it broke my heart to learn that Jamie had been sent back, what was it, like 15 years further than Sean? So he had spent 15 years all alone in his memories, Mm -hmm. you know? Yep. So heartbreaking to me (laughs) because I I cannot imagine what that must have been like. That would have been horrible. Absolutely awful. I mean, he tried to kill himself because he just couldn't take it anymore. And then the gods were just like, "Uh uh-uh. We brought you back for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're like sabotaging him and stuff yeah. like that. Oh, but yeah, the fact that he did try to end his life there, that rang true to me just because I feel like I would go crazy. Oh, yeah. If I had to spend 15 years being the only one who could remember the end of the world, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I, I can't imagine how bad that must have been for him. Yeah. No, but I love, I love this whole prospect of sending those two back in time so that they can try again. The ultimate time travel, like, fix it, fic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because ultimately, you really need the kingdoms united so that they can turn the strength of the entire kingdom against the White Walkers, because if you don't have that united front, there's no way Mm -hmm. that the world is going to (laughs) survive. So I thought that that was so super interesting. What can you tell us about maybe some themes or messages that you were kind of exploring here? So I am a pantser. And for those who aren't aware, it's kind of this dichotomy of planner versus pantser. And pantser is the term like writing by the seat of your pants sort of thing. And I would call myself a half-pantser. It's not like I don't know what I'm writing when I sit down to write it. I just don't actually plan it out to a very huge amount. I I prefer to keep things pretty low-key and bare because part of the satisfaction of writing for me is being able to sort of explore and figure out the story as a sort of mystery for myself. Like, oh, where are the characters going to lead me today? Yeah, yeah. And so it sounds like if you plan it too far. It loses that sense of mystery. Yes, you feel like you've already kind of written it. Yeah, so anyway, as a result, I don't really write with any sort of themes in mind. But I suppose if one theme has popped up in this work, and I'll admit it's incredibly subtle and maybe less well-known, but it's the idea of fate and just how much control we have over our own destinies. The gods turn back time, after all, and as the story has gone, they seem to be rather hands-off. Their single biggest move was taking the two back through time, but are they really that hands-off? How much is being determined by John and Jamie's plans? After all, John is still a pretty new player to the Game of Thrones. And while Jamie had a more experience, because he's lived in King's Landing this whole time, he hasn't shown much interest in it. So he's an amateur. He's not a pro like Peter Baelish and Varys and maybe Tywin Lannister are. But they've been able to persevere and they've gotten to where they are, partially by good fortune and partially because... They know the future, so they kind of have an idea of what to expect from the people around them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I have enjoyed that theme quite a bit, actually. 
that dichotomy between choice and fate, you know, <laughs> because like the gods didn't let Jamie die, you know, yeah. because that wasn't part of the plan. So even though he wanted to end it, they didn't let that happen. Mm -hmm. And you do get the sense that, I don't know, even though it feels hands off, right? Yeah. That there's still something going on in the background where they're still guiding things along and ready to step in if needed, you know, just like they did with sending Jamie and John back through time. Yep. I love that. I've really enjoyed reading this story as it's progressed and everything. I think, and I don't know if this sounds silly or not, but like, I think one of my favorite things about this work is just the close friendship that you see between John and Jamie. Yeah. I've gotten a huge kick out of that. <laughs> Seems like that's a favorite feature of a lot of people. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So I'm not alone. Like, <laughs> I'm not alone. Because, yeah, that's been one of my favorite things. And I'm not quite sure why. But it's been really, really cool to see them work together and have that friendship. And also, it's been really gratifying to see them trust one another, you know? Yeah. I'm not so sure that we got trust to that level in the TV show. Oh, no. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. The idea is that, you know, when TDR starts, they've been fighting the Night King for a while. So Jamie and John have been together for a couple of years at that point. And Jamie knows what John is capable of and John knows what Jamie is capable of. And they don't have very compatible personalities, but they do have a common goal in saving Westeros. So Jamie does things that John will not like because Jamie is a, a fucking Lannister and he <laughs> he will bulldoze his way through any obstacle. Whereas John, you know, he's still got that honor that honorable upbringing that he got from Ned Stark, and he doesn't want to have to do dishonorable things, but Jamie, of course, has to pull him, like, you cannot be the paragon of honor here. You have to be king. And king requires you to make some really tough decisions that may look pretty bad, but will ultimately save Westeros. Yeah, I noticed that in your story, he takes on this role of sort of challenging John, mm -hmm. you know, because you're right, like John comes from this background. And it's a lot of his upbringing, I think, because the way he was raised with that honor. And so he tries to take that with him as he tries to unite the kingdoms. And you're right, like, there are so many times in the story where Jamie kind of has to challenge him on that. And sometimes John gets so angry. Yeah. That it's like... It just doesn't feel natural or familiar to him. No. Nope. But I think on some level in the story, he does recognize that Jamie does have a point. Yeah. And Jamie's correct in a lot of these situations that it does require a heavier hand than John would be used to providing. So it is interesting to see how that dynamic goes, you know. But even when John is so angry at Jamie, like there's still that trust there. Yeah. You know, which I love. I absolutely love that. The other thing that I love about your story is that at least when it comes to Jamie's character, you deviated a little bit from canon and you gave him this really interesting head injury that gives him some interesting abilities, which I loved. I thought that was so cool. Do you remember what inspired you to go there with Jamie's character? Yeah, a little bit. So I had read about this ability for anyone interested the ability that i gave jamie is called synesthesia 
And the idea behind it is that this is a real diagnosis. People can really get this. Anyway, you get some kind of head injury, a brain bleed of sorts, and it kind of rewires your brain a little bit and mixes up your senses. So what synesthesia is, is the ability to see sounds. I don't quite understand how this manifests, but the idea is that you can see sounds usually by color. And there was a fanfic I read where another character from another fandom was written with, with synesthesia. And it was such an incredibly poetic way to write. And it was, it was just really cool. I love the way they did it. And the idea is that this person could talk to people and he could understand their tone, their mood, their inflections based on the color that their voice generated. Although generally what that person did was every person had their own unique color. So like one person typically had like a dark wine red, but then if he was really pleased with himself, it would be like a light pink. Yeah, it was just different shades of red. And I decided to vary that up because there's too many characters in Game of Thrones and trying to get everyone to have their own unique color would have been impossible. Yeah, I agree. So I decided instead to tie the emotions to the colors instead. Yeah, and I loved that you went there with his character because in your story, he gets his head injury from a, it was a bear, right? Yep. A bear attack. <laughs> and he, he has this head injury from there. And what I loved, especially about how you did this, is the head injury gives Jamie a weakness and it gives him a strength. Yes. And I'm a sucker for that dynamic, okay? Mm -hmm. The weakness is that Jamie suffers from uh, seizures. Yep. And they come on, you know, due to stress. They come on due to different things. Um, He has a hard time, I think, being in rooms with lots of people. Yeah. It's overstimulating. Mm -hmm. Noises can kind of aggravate him, yeah. you know? And things like that. So there's that vulnerable element to his character now with that part of the head injury. But then, you know, the head injury also gives him the the strength, whereas he can see intention. Mm -hmm. He can see sounds. So when people are speaking to him, he can tell, are they angry? Are they happy? Are they being deceitful? Mm -hmm. Are they lying? Yep. You know, all these things. Which comes in big handy because oh, yeah. most of what Jamie's doing in your story is all political. Yeah, he, he's kind of managing the political threats. Yes, yes. And so being in that political role, it is so incredibly helpful for him to be able to suss out what people are thinking behind their words because he can see the colors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I thought that was so super cool. So that's probably like... Obviously, Jamie's like my favorite in your whole story because he is so interesting with that unique aspect that you've given him here. I was wondering, were there any other unique canon deviations in your story like that besides Jamie that you wanted to talk about? Well, I mean, TDR deviates quite drastically from canon pretty early on, so... It's not a whole lot I can talk about. I suppose one another interesting thing would be Cersei. Jaime gets taken back by the gods to the day Cersei marries Robert Baratheon. When this happens, this Jaime, who arrives on that day, absolutely loathes his sister. 
he hates her guts because her inability to cooperate and join with the forces is kind of why the Night King wins in the end. And he can't forgive her for that. And of course, he also recognizes that she didn't actually love him in the end, that he was just a means to an end for her. She loved that he was kind of an identical twin to herself, but she didn't really see in him more than just a sword to do her bidding. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And you're right. Like, that is definitely canon deviation, right? Because, yeah, like, he does not sleep with her. Yeah. He's just so done. Yeah. He's so done with Cersei. He's 100% done with Cersei. Yeah. And so yeah. the children that that Cersei produces are still not Baratheon true-born children because she hates Robert. Instead, she slept with a different Lannister. Right. Not Jamie. So in your story, those children are not Jamie's children. Exactly. They're not Jamie's children, but they're also not true born and they're not a threat to John as a result. But yeah, the the thing that Cersei goes through, her brother hating her guts, her beloved twin brother that she's been with through kind of thick and thin, I guess, before she got taken out of King's Landing and he got posted at King's Landing permanently. Yeah, suddenly he hates her guts and she has no clue why. He won't say anything to her. He refuses to speak with her. And that kind of drives her a little crazy. She was already kind of crazy. Well, it must have been so abrupt for her. And just infuriating. How dare he do that? You know, I'm queen. Right. But it's still her brother and... People obviously would not like her sleeping with her brother. So he has that power to be able to just be like, no. Yeah, 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 no. So early on in your story, you do see that, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, I don't want to use the word hatred, but I mean, like, you know, there's definitely that sense that they're absolutely not getting along, Mm -hmm. you know, between him and Cersei from the very beginning of your story. So I thought that was pretty cool. And then she kind of, correct me if I'm wrong, because sometimes my brain gets it wrong, but she sort of has a rather magnanimous end in the story at some point. Like, doesn't she? Not really. (laughs) She, well, she ends up just kind of like passing away. Yeah. Like uh, one day, right? No, um, the Ironborn kill her. Oh, (laughs) I don't remember The Ironborn kind of, the Ironborn kill her off screen basically oh see and all this time i thought she was with the marmonts and she just like she died she is with the marmonts but the ironborn invade bear island all the, the time ironborn invade and that's how she dies yeah. okay all right now that makes sense because i was like wait a second i thought she was a prisoner with the marmonts yeah <laughs> oh yeah no the story is just incredible in its scope and it really is I feel like it's more political it is. than it is like adventure and fighting. Yeah, yeah. there's barely any battles. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we don't get a whole lot of that, but we do get a lot of political intrigue and we get to kind of dive into John and we get to dive into Jamie because you switch off on points of view mm-hmm. 
So we get a really good mix of those two characters and their, you know, friendship and their working together. And um, here we are at chapter 100, right? Yeah. <laughs> and we're still going on their journey to try to unite all seven kingdoms so that they can eventually defeat the White Walkers and the Night King. So up to chapter 100. Did that feel like a huge accomplishment? Uh, I mean, yes. But when I first started TDR, and I, I don't even know why I bother making estimates for how long I think a project will be. Because they're never, they're never correct. I always way underestimate how much I have to say. I thought TDR would be like 300,000 words, 350,000 words. No way. <laughs> yeah, you, you've surpassed that mm -hmm. by now. <laughs> yes, yes. I surpassed that quite a while ago. I wanted to ask you about that. You know, I have noticed that on your social media platforms, you do periodically post the project stats mm -hmm. for TDR. I was wondering if you know what the current stats are for this project at this point. I do. And I even collected some extra stats for this Ooh. show. So I technically have 101 chapters because the prologue counts. Right. The work is 423,057 words total. I've written 56,043 words so far this year. The PDF that you download from AO3 is 1,226 pages long. Oh my god, no way! <laughs> that does include all of the author's notes, so maybe take off 20 pages or so. Yeah, but still. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. And there are 15 distinct POVs in The Dragon's Roar. Amy and Jamie have the most POV chapters... Eamon's at 36 and Jamie's at 33. The person with the third most POVs is Daenerys with 14. Yes, I was suspecting that, that she would come in third. Yeah. Because you do see her. Yeah. And there are 118 POVs total in the story. For those who are just like, that's more POVs than you got chapters, that's because I doubled up on POVs in some of the chapters. And one chapter, I even tripled them. So. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's so cool. I love those stats and those numbers, especially the word count for me. That's incredible. I saw this meme the other day, not a meme, but I saw this chart on Tumblr the other day that was estimating the word counts for popular published novels. Mm -hmm. And they were estimating that the average published novel is about what, 98,000 words? Yeah. Right? Something about that. So you've already written like the equivalent of four novels here. Yeah. That's incredible to me. Absolutely incredible. I love that. You know, one of the things that has impressed me about this particular work is just how consistently you post new content for The Dragon's Roar. You're posting new chapters every two weeks. Yep. A couple of breaks in between, but... Yeah. Well, and you've kept up that schedule, like, pretty consistently for a while now. Oh, yeah. And I was just curious to know what your actual writing schedule looks like in those weeks between chapter postings. Because I know, for instance, with my show, I post a new episode every two weeks, but I am constantly working on the show in the background every single day, right? right. So it's just like a daily thing for me. And I was wondering what that looks like for you. Are you writing on the project every day? How does that work? I don't write on the project quite every day, but very close. In the two-week period between chapters, 
I'm prepping the next chapter that's going to be published. And then I'm also writing the next chapter that I have to write. So the way it works is like right now I am giving chapter 101 to my betas, but I'm working on chapter 104. Ah, so you've worked in a buffer for yourself. Yes, I, I honestly can't survive without the buffer. So I write, I try to write about 500 words a day. It seemed like I, I rarely ever actually hit the 500 word count. It just depends on how well the chapter is coming out. So it can take me between 7 and 10 days to write a chapter or, or so. And then when I do finish a chapter, I give myself the next day off. To not think about TDR, to not write about it. It's kind of important to me to manage burnout because I know how vulnerable I am to it. So, yeah, I always try to work in at least a day or two break. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes it's more than a day. Other times, usually I can just be like, okay, what's next? All right, that plot point. All right, let's get started. And I just, it really helps me to keep a schedule and try to keep on task. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I love that you work in downtime for yourself in that schedule, you mm -hmm. know, to kind of prevent burnout. Did you make that decision based on experience? Did you experience burnout initially with this project? No. Part of it was because of the, the very first NaNoWriMo I did where I burned the hell out for three months. Oh, okay. And then other times it's just, you know, I have a full-time job. I work 40 hours a week, too. Doing all that work and then also doing TDR is, I don't have a lot of room for pretty much anything else. Like, I barely even read fan fiction anymore because I'm just so intent on getting TDR out. Yeah, well, it, it's a lot of work, Yeah, right? Yeah. It's a lot of work that you're doing on top of your actual adult real life responsibilities. Yeah, and like, <laughs> yeah. I don't, I hardly see movies anymore these days, or especially not new movies. I'll watch old movies all the time, but that's just background noise to me because I've seen them enough. I don't need to watch them again. And like, there's tons of video games that I've been meaning to play forever and I still haven't played them. Yeah, so it's just like, you need to work in more downtime so you can actually do the stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's so healthy to be able to schedule that in for yourself because, you know, you're right. Especially when you've got this big, massive project that you've been working on for years, you really do need days where you can just not think about it mm -hmm. and not feel guilty for not working on it. Yeah. You know? It's also kind of important to refresh the whole creative thing. You can go stagnant by not actually getting much creativity from elsewhere, too. So Right, right. So you got to give yourself that time to do that. I think that's really cool. So, okay, speaking of, like, full-time real-life adult work <laughs> I have to know <laughs> I'm curious to know if you find yourself constantly thinking about the dragon's roar while you are at your full-time adult real-life job and the reason that I ask that is because I have a 40-hour-a-week corporate job myself and I work from home so sometimes I am able to sneak in a quick fan fiction chapter read in between things that I'm doing at work. However, <laughs> when I do that, my brain goes into fan fiction mode, right? right? So then the phone will ring and it'll be a client 
and all almost answer the phone. Hello, this is Jamie Lannister. How can I help you? Because I've just been reading like GOT fan fiction. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Or it's just really hard to switch sometimes or even worse, sometimes I'll be reading like a smut chapter or something from somewhere and then a client will call in and I have to stop myself from saying something super embarrassing. <laughs> um, so I was just wondering if you feel like TDR ever intrudes, you know, as you're going about your day-to-day work at your job. Well, in that respect, I'm quite fortunate. My job is is very boring, so I do think about TDR quite a lot during my job. However, the only people I talk to in the course of my day are my coworkers. I don't talk to clients at all. I don't speak with them either on the phone or in the chat service that we use. I don't have to worry about that too much. Before the pandemic, when I was at the office, sometimes I would sneak in writing a paragraph or two if something came to me. But uh, so corporate did some things that were really annoying. They took away incognito mode on Chrome. They did? Yes. Oh, rude. So as a result, I could no longer log into my email through the computer. And that cut me off from working on any chapters anymore. And I sure as shit am not going to pull up any fan fiction (laughs) on the work computer. Whether it's right. smut or not. Yeah. I'm not right. I'm not doing that. Yeah. 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 No, I don't either. I have my personal computer set up right next to my workstation. Yeah. And so it's always on my personal computer. Like whenever I'm doing fandom stuff throughout the day, it's always on my personal computer. But like, oh my God, I have had some close calls. Can I tell you a funny story? Sure. So before the show, I was telling you how I'm also a licensed realtor. Yeah. On top of my full-time job, I was doing some work as a licensed realtor the other day, and part of my work included having to send an email. And this email was going to the client. It was going to another real estate agent. It was going to the title company. It was going to the mortgage lender. Like, it was going to all these people, right? Mm -hmm. I go to fill in the email subject line section of the email. And it autofills with fan fiction search tag terms. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I almost sent an email to all of these different people with fan fiction search terms oh, in the subject line of the email. It was so bad. That, that's a close call. It was such a close call. I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe that even happened. That has never happened to me before. Like, I have no idea how that even happened. And when I caught it, I was like, oh, my fucking God. <laughs> I could get like in trouble for this. So like I, I, you know, I saved myself before it actually happened. But it was one of those times where I was like, fan fiction's totally trying to sabotage me. <laughs> it's really awful. Oh, but it is funny, though, how sometimes these things can intrude on our real life during work and things like that. You know, are you working back in the office or are you working from home? No, uh, we've been working from home ever since the pandemic started. And as a result, I have a work laptop that I set up in front of my desktop. So I do fan fiction stuff on my desktop and work stuff on my work laptop. That's what I was just going to ask. With working from home, that lends itself much better yes. to a setup where you can do fandom and fanfiction related things throughout the day when you find a couple minutes here and there yeah. 
to kind of sneak it in. So, <laughs> oh, that's good that you don't have to talk to clients, though, because that really is the hardest switch for me. Honestly, it's the best part of the job. Now, you've been working on this project for years, as I think we've already stated. You've accomplished a lot of really, you know, impressive milestones with this fic. Like I said, you're at chapter 101, if you count the intro and everything. And I was wondering, in what ways has this project changed your life? Because this is absolutely an unusual project, in my opinion, just because you've been working on it for so long. It has so many chapters, so many words. I mean, it's incredible. So I am wondering how The Dragon's War has changed your life. Well, I think I mentioned earlier in the podcast how I used to be a kind of person who would finish a chapter and then immediately post it, and then it would kind of be a variable when I would get the next chapter out. Well, when I started TDR, I was just like, this is a huge project. This could take a long time. And of course, I gave myself an out like, eh, you know, if it doesn't pan out, I can always just abandon it. But then, of course, it actually became popular. My very first work to become popular, and it's like, oh, God, I can't abandon it now, can I? <laughs> the pressure's on now. <laughs> yeah, well, thankfully, I do love the project, so it's not like I'm pulling teeth to try and get chapters out or anything. But I knew that my original schedule of just kind of throwing up chapters whenever I got them wouldn't work. And so... I decided to do a buffer system, like we've mentioned, and I decided to post on a buffer system. Yeah, originally, when I was writing it for NaNoWriMo, I wasn't posting it at all. The first chapter, I think, got posted November 30th or something. Oh, okay. And then it ended up having an explosive response, like right out of the gate. People were loving it. Oh, like right away? Yeah. It got something oh. like 20, 25 reviews for the very first chapter. I'd never had it attention like that oh wow so this was kind of the first time oh, yeah where you kind of had an explosion of interaction yeah i i was so shocked you know everyone wants to be popular but i had been in fan fiction for so long at that point i was assuming i would never be popular because i tended not to write for what the crowd usually enjoyed but as it just so happens people in got love canon divergence time travel fixes and so do I. <laughs> so so you really just hit on like the thing that tends to get a lot of attention yeah. in that particular fandom. Yeah. So and, you know, I mentioned before that I didn't think that I could survive as a published author in a full time writing career because uh, you can't put inspiration on a schedule. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had to figure that out. And I found that setting a routine of writing at a specific time at night actually primed my brain for that. Really? Yes. So even though when I finish chapters and I have to give myself a day to not think about it, I will get restless right around the time that I'm supposed to be writing. And I'll, f I'll feel like I have an itch and I need to like get some words down. It's just like, no, you're, you're on a break. <laughs> That's enough. Oh, that's so interesting that you've kind of hit on the type of routine that works best for you and your creative brain. Yeah, you know? I, I was so shocked, but it is possible to put writing on a kind of schedule. In my case, I have to make it a pretty strict routine. Otherwise, 
I might not fall into that mindset of, okay, it's time to write. Right. Oh, I love that, though. That's so cool. That by far is what has changed my life the most. And TDR was absolutely the catalyst for that. Oh, that's really cool. With this being your most popular project, has the fact that it's become so popular, has that changed your life at all? Just having so much interaction with the readership? Yeah, it has. I mean, again, I am aspiring to be a published author. And for the longest time, I didn't think I had the chops to actually write something that people would like. And so now it's just like, okay, I can write something that is pretty popular. And maybe I actually could make it as a published author and have a decent following. Maybe not J.K. Rowling popular, but, you know, doing okay for myself. Yeah, so it's kind of been that confidence booster yeah. of, I think I could do yeah, this. Yeah, it's been an absolute confidence booster. And of course, I mean, it has changed some things, maybe not quite so drastically, I'm not used to my works getting a lot of attention. And even with TDR, a lot of my other Game of Thrones works don't have a lot of attention. But I also think that they got more attention than they otherwise would if I wasn't known. Right. Because of TDR, it's kind of spilled out into some of the other (laughs) projects and things that you have going on there and everything. But yeah, I just think that that's so cool. It, It made me wonder, like, huh. I wonder what that is like to have something blow up so fast, right? Because I imagine that that would change some aspects of your life in some way. So that's really cool. And I'm sure, of course, that as you've gone along in this project and progressed with it, you've learned, I'm sure, a lot of things about writing that you didn't know before. Are there any important writing lessons that you've learned with TDR that you'd like to share for the other fanfiction writers out there? Sure. So first and foremost, don't be afraid to lean onto your reader's imagination. You do not have to paint every single detail. Your readers have an imagination. They can fill in what is necessary without you having to actually describe it. So try not to bog yourself down in too many words describing things. Ooh, I like that a lot. You know, it's funny because... I feel like I see a lot of fan fiction writers over-describe the world building that they're trying to accomplish with their project, you know? And sometimes you can get really caught up in the details Mm -hmm. so much that you almost get stuck in it. Yeah. Like, there are quite a few scenes that take place in, say, the Tower of the Hand. People know what the Tower of the Hand looks like. Most of them saw the show. I don't need to tell them what it looks like. Or I can describe it in the first scene that takes place in the Tower of the Hand, and then I can just say, you know, this scene takes place in the Tower of the Hand, and people should be able to fill in that necessary detail without me actually having to re-describe the location again. Right, right, exactly, which then takes the pressure off of you to have to do that in the first place, and you can just move on to more important stuff. (laughs) Oh, I love that. That's so cool. Oh, speaking of important stuff, I know that you've recently, I I believe it was this year, you put some work into what you're calling a character creation and writing guide, which you posted up on AO3, Mm -hmm. which I think is super, super cool that you did that. Uh, So I was hoping that you could talk about that a little bit. Tell Tell us about that. What is that? So I'm a part of a writing forum, and I noticed... About the time that I conceived the idea for the guide, there were a lot of people asking about, like, how do you write, you know, X character? How do you write 
OC characters, and I've been writing a very long time. And as it turns out, I've been writing OC characters since the very beginning. I mean, I told you my first fandom was Red Wall, right? Right. You know the series. Each story is typically its very own contained story with an entirely new cast of characters. There is very rarely any overlap. So all OC casts are actually expected and wanted in the Red Wall fandom. Most people don't really care about any expansions on what's already there because they're self-contained stories. So new stories are needed. So it sounds like you had experience with creating the OCs, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And everything. So then you just kind of, it sounds like you put what you've learned over the last 20 years into this guide for people. And it kind of goes into character creation. And it sounds like you go into like maybe general writing guides in there as well. Yes, mostly general writing guidance. Uh, The thing with anything to writing is that it's so highly individual to the writer itself. Like I can say, you know, this is how I do it, but you may not like how I do it. You may think, oh, I think it could be done a better way. And I can't tell you otherwise, like, no, that's a terrible way. That's not true. There are so many different ways to write anything. It's just kind of like, oh, well, if you like that way better, you know, more power to you. So yeah, most of what I offer is very general because I don't want to step on people's toes like, no, that's not the way to do this. (laughs) Right, right, right. Because like you said, there are so many different ways of doing it, but you are just putting this information out there. If it helps somebody, then it helps somebody, Exactly. you know, and more power to them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think that's so super cool because I've actually never seen any other writing guides posted to AO3. I suspect they've got to exist. I'm sure they must. I didn't look very far. That's the thing with AO3 is that their original stuff is quite contained, like, into one category. There is no special category for guides, so. Right. No, there's not. There's not. But I suspect that they must be out there. But I just, I think that's so super cool that you would take some of the things that you've learned over the course of your fanfiction writing career and distilled that into some kind of guide. You've posted it up there on AO3 under your Priestess of Groove account so that people can access that if they want to and and learn from you and your experience. So I think that's super cool. I do have more lessons if you want to hear them. Of course. Okay. So unless you're certain you can remember details, don't nail down specifics. If it's not important for the reader to have that detail, then it doesn't need to be specific. You don't need to put down a date. You don't need to say, like, this happened four days ago. No, just say, this happened a couple days ago, or this happened a few days ago. This happened last week. Don't box yourself in like that. With the specifics. Yeah, because then people will poke holes into your timeline if you try and do that. Oh, I never thought about it like that before. Mm-hmm. And this is this is something that I've noticed about GRRM's work, because he does do a lot of the vagueness, but then there's also a lot of specifics, and there's quite a few people who are just like, does that work? I mean, the distances that he has here versus the time that people actually, does that work? So so you've seen that happen to him. Yes. Where he was too specific and people start poking holes. Yeah. He he made the continent of Westeros absolutely enormous. But of course, it's medieval time. So people can't get to places very quickly. So. Right. Yeah. And it, it also depends on how much cargo you have. A single rider can probably reach, you know, 
one place in two weeks, whereas a whole army would take a month or two to do the same. Oh, at least. Mm -hmm. With all those people. All the supplies and horses. And, and they're probably walking, whereas, you know, a horse is faster. So, yeah, they're not important. You don't need to, to make them specific. Oh, I love that. I love. What else do you have? Have faith in your plan for your story. I mentioned that I was a pantser, but this project is so long and complicated that I eventually had to sit down and write up a roadmap of sorts into things that I wanted to cover. And this started when I began writing about book two of The Dragon's Roar, because there are just so many character POVs to keep track of. I ran into some reader resistance over certain characters, and I agonized over the length of The Dragon's Roar, and almost constantly questioned myself how necessary some of these chapters were. Some chapters I was able to eliminate, like, before they even got written. It's just like, uh, is this really necessary? Does this kind of characterization for this, but that character isn't that important to the story at, at hand? Okay, I don't, I don't think I need to actually have that chapter. But other chapters required certain POVs, which meant the information couldn't be conveyed by other means through other POVs. So, yeah, I had to be respective of the POV and what time they appeared in the story. Like, even though I keep to the schedule, TDR is a rather plotting fic. It's very careful in the way I have written it. And I was so concerned and so fearful that I was adding unnecessary padding. However, I have come to peace with the fact that TDR was just going to have to be that long and things were going to have to be that careful. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely get that impression from the work that it's very careful. The writing, it's careful in the planning, mm -hmm. you know? And so I can absolutely see how that would be an important aspect of the project is you have to have faith in that planning. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's okay if, say, a reader gives you an idea and you like it and to incorporate that, but you don't have to let the readers influence your plan. Like, if you're certain about your plan, if you are confident in your plan, stick with it. Hell, even if you aren't certain about it, stick with it. Because the thing with writing is that it's really hard to evaluate where you are in a story when you're in the middle of it. All of that time for self-reflection and how plotting it actually is and the pacing of the story, that has to be considered once it's all done and can be taken into full consideration. I can absolutely see how being in the middle of the project, especially when it's your work, mm -hmm. right? It's so hard, I think, to self-evaluate your own work sometimes. Oh, it, it's impossible. We are our greatest <laughs> yeah. critics. Aren't we, though? Aren't we? We love to criticize our own work, and we love comparing it to other people's work. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't know what it is about human nature that makes us like that, but... <laughs> Oh, but it's hard. It's hard sometimes because there are times, I think, when you are involved in a project, you know, whatever the project is, sometimes you have really have to be your own cheerleader. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You, you have to have faith in yourself. Yeah. Do you feel like there have been moments during your writing? Oh, absolutely. Because the thing with TDR, I have never written a fic like this before. This is my longest project. I have never written anything political, ever. Oh, so this is kind of venturing into unfamiliar territory for you in many ways. Yes, yeah. I'm an action-adventure person. I like adventure stuff. I mean, my favorite movies are like Aliens and Terminator 2 Judgment Day. 
and you know the Harry Potter series and yeah, Jurassic well, there's Park. all that action and adventure. Yeah, and stuff. action yeah. adventure. That's my thing. And so politics. I'm a little bit out of my depth, but I did enjoy. As I said, characters are my favorite parts of a story, and George R. R. Martin has some of the best characters I've ever seen written. And the way that he weaves those political threads is something to be admired. I really enjoyed that aspect of the Game of Thrones. Yeah, absolutely. And just being able to take those really interesting complex characters and play with them for your own story must be super satisfying, right? Yes. (laughs) Oh, that's so cool. And I love that about being your own cheerleader and believing in yourself and believing in your own project, you know? Oh, one last lesson. I've seen people on the writing forum often pose a question of something like, what happens when you have an idea for a story, but you don't have the skill set to actually tell that story? Don't even think in those terms. You think I felt I had the skill set to tell the dragon's roar <laughs> when I decided to write it? No. As I said, I'd never written political thriller at all. At all. Right. But First attempt. Yeah, and... <laughs> I'm just one of those people who jumps in feet first without even looking, usually. And that's just how I roll. And you know what? That's how you learn to write. Just taking chances and taking risks, expanding your horizons. That's how you get better. Yeah. How else are you supposed to gain the skills, right? Mm -hmm. To tell the story appropriately if you don't just jump in with both feet and do it. Yep. Just do it. (laughs) Take that Nike logo and apply it to writing. Just do it. Yes, yes, yes. And I think sometimes I wonder if fan fiction writers think of themselves in terms of being an artist, but that's the way that I see it. And, you know, artists sometimes do have to push the envelope and they have to just be very bold in their decisions, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that that's okay. And I think that We need to remember that sometimes, that uh, art is bold, and sometimes art requires some really bold creative choices, and that's okay for us to be able to make those choices, even if they feel uncomfortable at the time. Mm -hmm. And don't beat yourself up if you think you failed. Don't bother. That's a lesson learned, and you can approach your next project with that in mind, so you can avoid those pitfalls. Yeah. Yeah, instead of seeing it as a failure. You can just reframe it as an opportunity. Exactly. You know? Yeah. I love that. That is awesome. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you. (laughs) And I know that you may not have like a solid answer to this, but with your project here, The Dragon's Roar, do you have a good idea of what your long-term goals are for TDR at the moment? Do you have like a solid end goal in mind here? I mean, I do have an ending in mind. I actually basically have an epilogue already mostly formed in my head. So I know what the epilogue will look like. I have an ending in mind. It's still very much up in the air. Things can change. I am allowing that to just kind of coalesce the way it goes. I do have plans. So the way the Dragon's Roar is structured is that it's broken up into three books, is what I call them. It's all posted under one title, but there's three books. And the first book is John and Jamie establishing John's reign as king. He's known as Aemon Targaryen in, in The Dragon's Roar. And then the second book 
is them having to deal with the threats that come with John finally becoming king. And then the third book is, of course, prepping for the Night King and eventually fighting the Night King. But its structure is a little bit more nebulous because there will be time jumps. I mean, where we are in the story right now, for the TV show, the way I think the books worked is that one book equaled one year. So dies at the end of Game of Thrones, the book. So it's only been about 14 months since Aemon declared himself king. So we're still in like the early parts of season two. Ah. The actual winter and the long night is still way far off. It's far. Yeah, still a ways away. Yeah. <laughs> so there will there will be time jumps. I I am not writing out everything between then and now. That would take way too long. <laughs> I was going to say, that would be daunting. It would be daunting, and there's no way I have enough planned. Like, there's not enough action that goes on that that would be necessary either. Right. Yeah, so there will there will be time jumps. So knowing that you've got part three coming here and all of that, do you anticipate that this project could still take you into the future a couple of years to end it? Yeah, with my current posting schedule of a chapter every two weeks. I can only post about, what, 20 chapters in a year? Uh, maybe 30. I don't know, maybe 20. Let me, let me check my stats here. 24 in a year. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So 24 in a yeah, year. Yeah, <laughs> and I, yeah, that does make sense, doesn't it? There's 12 months in a year. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Anyway, so I predict there's still about 30 to 40 chapters left. So at least one full year getting on into year five. Oh, yeah, because I was going to say we're probably looking at about a year and a half yeah. menos for that amount of time. And that's kind of what I was wondering, like, oh, man. <laughs> so it sounds like even though you leave room for different things to happen, so you don't have it like set in stone, yeah. but you still do have like a general ending point for the project. Yes, we are. We are two-thirds of the way through. No doubt about it. Uh, that's cool. I bet that feels really good, though. It does. To know that you've come that far. It really does. Because, I mean, a lot of the scenes that have come out within the last half year or so, I have been dying to write since the conception of the Dragon's Roar. Oh, and you had to be so patient to just hang on for it, right? Yeah, there are some writers who are just like, oh, if I'm feeling a scene, it doesn't matter where it occurs in the story, I'll just write it. I can't do that. I have to write in chronological order because part of my motivation for reaching that far is to write those scenes. Oh, like dangling a carrot in exactly, front of your own face. Yeah. Oh, that's so clever. I love that. Yeah, it's just like, just these chapters and then I can write that chapter. But of course, in my case, it was just like, <laughs> yeah, I just have to write 80 chapters and then finally I can get to that one scene. Oh my God. Okay, so you have to tell me, how did it feel the first time that you got to write one of those scenes that you've been waiting to write? I mean, my heart was in my throat, basically. <gasps> oh, it was just like, oh, In a good God. way or a bad uh, way? <laughs> I mean, it was excitement and nervous at the same time because it's just like, Oh my god, we're here. Oh, I hope I don't fuck it up. <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, 
That's so cool, though. I imagine that that moment of arrival just must feel so incredible. It really is, and there are there are still moments more just like that that I am looking forward to that occur right near the end. Oh, that's so cool! Uh, so you still got the carrot, still got the carrot dangling around in front of your face, so you keep plodding mm-hmm. along towards that prize. I love that, though. That's so clever. And that's just it. Like, those scenes, in order for them to be as impactful as I want them to be, I have to take the time to lead up to them. Right. You can't just throw it in because you're impatient. It's not like freaking D&D and their whole, like, shock twist. You didn't see it coming, (laughs) so it was a good (laughs) twist. No. Oh, my God. You know what's funny about that? Getting off on a tangent on that. But I was listening to another podcast the other day while I was at work. And they were talking about how the show writers is something about how they thought that the audience had already figured out what they intended for the final season. So they ended up taking twists and turns that they hadn't anticipated just for the shock and off factor. Yes. Yes. I think that is true. Are you freaking kidding me? Like all of that just so we'd be surprised? Uh-huh. Like, was that so important that we're surprised that you had to like ruin everything? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> and that's just the thing with good storytelling. Like, twists can still happen, but you kind of have to lead up to it. You kind of have to sew in hints that it's possible. Like, the Red Wedding was absolutely shocking, but there was always a possibility that it could happen. Oh, right. Because, you know, when he made that decision to marry his wife... You kind of knew that breaking his promise would lead you know? to bad things. Yes, you kind of like, you know, in the back of your mind, you're like, uh oh, this isn't good. Yeah, and it's not like the story hasn't spent all that time talking about how brutal things are and how your yes. your luck can turn on a dime. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, no, I agree that there were definitely some parts of the story that were shocking, but you kind of saw them coming, and so it's not so bad. But just being so off the wall shocking for the last season just for the sake of you didn't want anyone to suspect what you were up to for that final season. That's just it's actually amateur storytelling. <laughs> it is, though. It really is. I just I don't know. I didn't appreciate it at all. So, you know, whatever. Tangent you over. You and a over. lot of people. <laughs> I mean, the fact that Game of Thrones kind of just fell off the face of the earth after the show ended goes to show how bad it was. I remember... Oh, it really was. I remember, you know, walking into my familiar geeky stores and all of the Game of Thrones stuff is on, like, a deep clearance. And no one wanted it even at those prices. People are, like, protesting with oh, their yeah. wallets. HBO took a huge hit with that. I hope so. And what's really funny is, of course, they're now prepping for the House of Dragon. That TV show... And I had heard, obviously I don't have a source, so take it with a grain of salt, but I had heard that retailers are so nervous about people not buying the merchandise that they're not really willing to sign on. I would not blame them. I would not freaking blame them because, yeah, when people get really angry about the way that a story is handled, they will respond by just refusing to participate in the merchandising. Yeah, and the economy of that. Yeah, exactly. So I can absolutely see how these retailers would be nervous as fuck because, uh, yeah, you know, that final season. It's funny because 
I've known that you were coming on the show for about, I don't know, what, a month and a half yeah. now or something like that. So I took the opportunity to rewatch the series. Why? <laughs> Why would you do that? Well, I did. And I stopped at season eight. Oh, okay. I refused to watch Good. season eight. So I stopped at the end of seven. And I was like, you know, I've already seen season eight. I know how it ends. I, I just I couldn't do it, like physically couldn't do it. So I didn't. So, like, for me, season eight just doesn't exist. Yeah, it know? doesn't exist for me either. I mean, yeah. the yeah. Dragon's Roar basically starts off at the end of season seven. Like, maybe not directly at the end of season seven, but I don't take season eight into account at all. Yeah, and I love that. Like, for me, fan fiction for GOT is my season mm -hmm. eight. And I've just decided that I'm chucking canon out the window when it comes to season eight. I just refuse to acknowledge it. It didn't happen. And y'all's fan fiction stories are like my headcanon well, now. yeah. So. I mean, the fan fiction <laughs> so has more love in it than season eight ever had. It really did. And, you know, I have so many things to say about that because, like, I really believe that the storytelling capacity of you fan fiction writers, to me, rivals, honestly rivals what I see coming out of established Hollywood, you mm -hmm. know? And that's just my opinion. You guys are fantastic. I mean, being a writer for as long as I have now, it's been made obvious to me that I am better than even a lot of the writers employed in Hollywood today. And yeah. certainly, I know I'm better than D&D. &D. Almost anyone could be better than D&D. &D. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, there have been so many times where I have seen a show or an episode of a show or what have you, and then I will go find fan fiction that made me so much more satisfied mm -hmm. than the original content ever could. And I just think, what would it be like if these shows pulled in some of the best fan fiction writers? What would our media look like if we let these storytellers from the fan fiction side come in and just tell their stories? Well, I mean, there are some people who grew up with fan fiction and then became writers themselves, and they can influence what they're doing. I hope so, because one of the things that I'm just so impressed with, with fan fiction writers, is you guys have this amazing, unique, emotional insight to characters that I, I usually don't see in the writing when it comes to like a TV show or a movie, or what have you. And so I often wish that I did see that level of emotional depth in published canon, you know, whether that's TV, movie, book, whatever. Yeah, sometimes I wonder, like, oh, I wish they could pull in these fan fiction writers who have such emotional intelligence. Meh, it's just a dream of mine, you know. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> oh, my God. Now, are there any other fan fiction authors or fan fictions that you'd like to shout out on the show today? I would. So, since you sent me down memory lane with, you know, asking me about my starts in fan fiction, I would like to boost a friend of mine who was the legend, the legendary writer of Redwall fan fiction. Nice. Okay. His story is called The Crimson Badger. He's posted it to fanfiction.net. He posted it in four installments, and the first one is called Armies. He's like Brian Jocks, but maybe just a bit grittier. He's not Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire gritty. There is a bit more violence. For those who aren't familiar with the Redwall franchise, Brian Jocks wrote about animals. 
mostly rodents in a sort of medieval setting. But he did something kind of interesting. He has a very stern, good, bad dichotomy. So mice, squirrels, badgers, and we're talking UK badgers, not US badgers. Moles, voles, hares, uh, I think that's about it. They're all good guys. And then you've got rats, foxes, weasels, pine martens. Any rodent that you can think of with a negative connotation is bad. Yeah. And ne'er the twain shall meet. So generally, the interest in Redwall fanfiction is messing with that line. Oh, subverting that. Sure. Yeah. Ooh, I like that. Oh, and I was, I was kind of wrong. The first book is called The Warlord. So anyway, The Crimson Badger is about a, a badger lord who foresees a terrible threat. And he wants, with Redwall, to meet that threat. But Redwall is like a peaceful abbey. They don't have a standing army. So he had to make his army. And he recruited both good and bad type creatures to blend them together so they can become a force for good. The story is kind of about that integration and the friction that is generated from doing that. That sounds absolutely amazing. As I said, he's a legend. So it's The, the Crimson Badger, The Warlord by Highwing. It's only on fanfiction.net. But I actually just talked to him a couple days ago, and he plans on eventually moving all those stories to Archive of Our Own. Oh, good. Good. I'm glad. Yeah, he said it's going to be a while. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it will be a while. So uh, we'll make sure that we post the link to that yeah. in the show notes on FFN in the meantime so people can go check that yeah. out. Yeah, and then I'll recommend a Game of Thrones fanfic. I just started reading it a couple days ago. I haven't finished it, so I don't know if it necessarily goes in the best direction but it is well written it takes a very interesting turn it's a canon divergence it's called the werewood queen by red wolf and it's funny because it changes a very tiny detail in the original game of thrones ned stark kills lady right so and he orders men to take her bones back to winterfell and to entomb her there well, in this story, instead of taking her bones back to Winterfell, his men find a weirwood tree alongside the road not too far from where they're stationed. And they ask him, like, can we just bury her under a weirwood tree? And so they do. And uh, Sansa decides that she needs to say goodbye to her wolf. And she goes and she finds the weirwood tree. It doesn't have a face. So she carves a face into it. And she says, you know, please take care of Lady. I'm really sorry that this happened. I can't remember what promise she made, but she makes a promise to them. And there's a very clear, like, the gods accept this promise. And that will have far-reaching consequences into the story. I haven't gotten to the actual, like, divergent part where those consequences really start pulling out. But yeah, it's, it's been, it's very well written. 
So there's quite a bit of story, but still quite a bit of story left to tell. Oh, perfect. Perfect. We'll make sure that we get the links for both of those stories then up on the show notes for anybody who wants to check those out, because those both sound really, really cool. I like that. Yeah, I'm, my own readers recommended The Werewood Queen to me, and I have not been disappointed so far. It's, it's very interesting. Oh, awesome. Awesome. I love finding well-written works. It's one of my favorite things in the entire world, so that's great. Those are all of the questions that I have for you today. Priestess of Groove, do you have any last words for us? Hey guys, we are in book three. And yes, there's still quite a lot of time left before I actually finish the Dragon's Roar. But hey, we are on the final leg of this journey. And we're closer than ever to the ending than we've ever have been. So keep the faith. It will be finished, and you will eventually be able to enjoy the Dragon's Roar in its entirety. Thank you so much for your support this whole time. It's been wonderful being able to write for such a passionate audience. Oh, that's perfect. I'm sure that we all appreciate that. That's wonderful. Okay, so one last pop quiz for you before we go. P.O.G. Sure. What do we say to the God of Death? No spoilers today. <laughs> Oh, oh, I was not <laughs> expecting that. That's great. <laughs> that's a popular that's a popular that's... gif in my uh, um in my Discord. <laughs> Someone posted it. Oh my god. Oh my god. I was not expecting that. That's so great. That is so great. Priestess of Groove, thank you so much for joining us today. That was perfect. Check out her stories, guys, on AO3. Give her some love. You can find the Fanfic Maverick online at fanficmaverickpodcast.com, on Tumblr at fanficmaverickpodcast, on Instagram at fanficmaverick, and I can always be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling. <laughs> <laughs>